No, I mean, it's just, it's where everything's headed, right? I mean, this is what everyone, everyone's talking about. The fact that electricity is now an actual conversation at the dinner table. And the reason it's a conversation at the dinner table is it's not because it's famous. It's kind of because it's infamous. Uh, I mean, Winter Storm Uri in Texas, everyone knows what that is. Um, and so that's why it's not the clean economy. It's just the economy. Um, it's just what we have to be doing. And so, I mean, I'm here because this is the only option. People, it's it's if you realize it's the only option or if you don't realize it's the only option. That's really the only way I look at it. And this is Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. My day job is running TigerCom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. I get to meet the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful companies in your sectors. So each show, we try to bring you usable insights from these leaders so you can apply them to the business of running your business. Hey, Clean Techers. Welcome back to another episode of Scaling Clean. As listeners know, our show is tightly focused on interviewing CEOs to glean best usable practices and tips on how to build, run, and lead companies. One of the things I'm fascinated by are the backgrounds of our guests. Some of them are serial entrepreneurs, some have come from finance, and others are power sector veterans with deep experience in building and running projects. But my guest today is an energy trading specialist. He's traded or managed traders for over seven different companies in his career. And now Sean Kelly is co-founder and CEO of Amperon, which Sean describes as the forecasting company for the energy transition. Sean's been running Amperon for six years, and I'm interested in learning what he's learned being at the helm of his company. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, Really looking forward to this. So let me start with your background. If we were to split screen, Sean Kelly managing other people, the first job that he had to do that in, and how you manage and lead now, and we were watching that sitting side by side, what differences would we see in those two video clips? Oh, wow. Um, it'd probably be pretty embarrassing. So I, I started my energy trading career in 2005, uh, went to a, to a smaller company and kind of managed the real-time desk, did a really good job of trading uh, real-time in the Southeast and in, in MISO, Midwest, uh, independent system operator, and, uh, and PJM as well uh, in the East Coast. And I was managing the desk and I was probably 25 years old uh, and managing people that were significantly my elder. And it was very, very difficult. Uh, I think I didn't do like the correct things to demand the like to, I guess, earn the respect that I needed. I didn't know how to manage. I was just focused on purely on making money and optimizing the desk as much as possible. Whereas now you look back, I mean, I'm 40 and started this company uh, six years ago. Now very much looking up to how to build companies, how to build people, continue to like mature people throughout their career. So, I mean, I I would definitely be pretty embarrassed probably to see the the 24 versus 34. (laughs) Well, um, if you have met the 24-year-old who's an excellent manager at 24, I would like you to let me know who they are so I can interview them for this podcast because that's a prodigy right there. Just just going to say. Well, they don't exist. They, they absolutely don't exist. I, I always look at uh, like the the pier, like Maslow's pyramid of self-actualization. There's no 24-year-olds at the top of self-actualization. 
Uh, and so that is why you're never going to find that magical 24 year old to go manage or <laughs> right to go interview. Manage that level. Okay. Tell me about your mentors. Name me three mentors and what did you learn from each one of them? Let's see. Um, the first person who kind of gave me the time of day, who was way, way, way above my, actually I'll step one step back. I had someone who, uh, I went to Texas A&M, which is a giant networking school. Um, it's also a cult. Uh, but if you admit it's a cult, it's then not a cult, which is great. My <laughs> wife calls us Lord of the Rings. And, uh, and so, yeah, if you know, if you, if you know any Aggies, you know what I'm talking about. And so, um, there's a guy named Patrick Williams who was unbelievable. And he just really encouraged me to go out to these different leadership organizations. He, um, helped me through my job process. And so I, I was very involved when I was at Texas A&M, uh, in a bunch of student organizations and went to class on like a, a semi annual basis. Um, about as often as like Nordstrom's runs a sale. And so, uh, with that, I, um, had a really, really big Rolodex, but wasn't like, I didn't have like the three, eight that I wanted to go be an investment banker. Uh, and so he introduced me to all these different people and said, Hey, like I said, Hey, what are you doing? Are you happy where you're at? Et cetera. Met someone from the government office of accounting, met a hedge fund trader, met a whole bunch of different people. And I met a guy named Forrest Lane. Uh, at Tenasca and ended up hiring me. And that was my first job. So Patrick Williams is definitely one. Uh, number two, kind of back to that Aggie Network thing, uh, is just a guy named Bob Harvey. Um, he was like EVP, Aeroline Energy. And I sent him a cold email and said, Bob, you're, you're the best Aggie in energy. What should I do when I grow up? And he took me to lunch. I rolled up in my like $60 suit from Foley's, like nervous as could be. And I was like, Mr. Harvey, he's like, Bob, we had breakfast last month. Uh, so this is 20 ish years later. Um, but he was the first one that kind of took me under his wing. Unbelievable. He just stepped down, um, as CEO of Greater Houston Partnership. And so we still, we've been working together on helping bring uh, the tech community to Houston, which is actually going quite well. So those are two. Um, I mean, and then, Sean, let me ask, what did you, what's the most important thing you remember learning from Bob? Uh, from Bob. I mean, Patrick and Bob are both amazing networkers. Um, and that's one of the things. And then the thing that I learned from Bob is that the fact that some like little, like snot nose, I guess probably 21 year old kid with like acne went in and he, took the time out of his day to take me to a really nice lunch and, and spend time with me. Every single Aggie, I'm about to probably get a lot of inbound here, but every Aggie who emails me, I reply back to um, because he was just like, pay it forward. And I was like, if someone of that caliber tells me to pay it forward, that's all I'm going to do. And so I've been doing that for the last 20 years. So that's definitely what I've done. And it's come back. I mean, it's come back uh, <laughs> a very nice ROI on uh, on paying it forward from him the the last person i would say is uh probably cody moore uh cody was my boss at eagle which became lehman which became edf and he is one of the most like upstanding individuals in the whole business i don't know how he literally was like great family man great like running the trade floor involved in church did like 400 things he this guy somehow somehow he was given 36 hours every day and all, all the rest of us are stuck with 24 
Um, and so I think that was another mentor who just taught me like how to work hard. He gave me the opportunity to do uh, kind of the integration of Nine Mile and Ganae to nuclear power plants up in New York uh, and a bunch of other great opportunities. So I would say those are definitely three um, three that changed a ton is, is Patrick, Bob, and, and Cody as well. Nice. Okay. I'm often interested in how a CEO's background has helped or hindered them when they moved into the CEO role. You're the first veteran trader I've interviewed. And I'm really interested in how your work in energy trading equipped you, or maybe it handicapped you, in learning to lead teams. Were there advantages and disadvantages that you you found when you moved in your first moved into the CEO role? Yeah, I think um, the advantage is you make quick decisions when when you're trading. I trade what we call uh, I was a cash trader, so basically I was looking at like next month end, but I was trading a lot of literally intraday, and so you're looking at all this different information and you're trying to analyze all that information. There's no magic anything you can put it into and then spit out a decision. As CEO, it's the exact same thing. Our company, uh, in January of 2022, there were 12 people. Uh, in January of 2023, there were 28 people. And I think we have 65 today. I'm not sure. Uh, it's somewhere around that number. So being able to take in a whole lot of things, process it really quickly, and then, uh, and then spit it out is definitely massively helpful as CEO. On the counter side of that is the fact that sometimes you rush decisions. So literally the same thing that's a strength also becomes a weakness because sometimes you rush decisions, don't sit down, take the necessary things into account and like gather as much information as possible because you're used to making these like split second decisions. Um, so yeah, the, the, the greatest advantage is, is also one of the, the strong weaknesses. I love that. Thank you. Okay. You've done thermal generation and you've worked in the more mature parts of the energy sector. At what point in your career did you move into clean economy? And I'm, I guess a couple of follow-ups are what drew you to the sector and what's kept you there? So when did you move in? What prompted it? And what's kept you here? I never moved in. I started uh, in 2005. I was at Tenasca. And I had this really annoying schedule that I had to change every hour. Uh, it was a wind farm called Buffalo Gap. And I'm like, why do I have to change this thing every hour? This is so annoying. All the rest, you just set it and forget it. And they're like, Sean, that's wind. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, it's a wind farm. Like it's a half a megawatt, big giant wheel. Now we're looking at like three, five offshores or like 15 megawatts. It was a half a megawatt back in 2005 out in West Texas. There was 2,800 megawatts when I started in the industry. There's 38,000 megawatts just in Texas of wind capacity. So you look at that jump. I never got into the clean economy. I started in the clean economy. It just didn't actually become the clean economy uh, until I was already here. Interesting. So why do you stay here? What do you like about it? I mean, we're finally the cool kids. It took like 17 years to get here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. I got to make sure I tell my wife I'm cool. Thank you. And Sean Kelly, <laughs> and, and Sean Kelly says so. So I'm, I'm in. No, I mean, it's just, it's where everything's headed, right? I mean, this is what everyone, everyone's talking about. The fact that electricity is now an actual conversation at the dinner table. And the reason it's a conversation at the dinner table is it's not because it's famous. It's kind of because it's infamous. 
Uh, I mean, Winter Storm Uri in Texas, everyone knows what that is. Um, I definitely know what it is because I live in Houston and we lost power for 72 hours. Uh, my wife was six months pregnant. So that was fun. Um, so, I mean, you look at this, the fact a hurricane hit California, that's not a thing. Wildfires in Boulder, also not a thing. I mean, all of these different events that we're going through, they're not, we have a one in a hundred year tail event every like at least six months. And so that's why it's not the clean economy. It's just the economy. Um, it's just what we have to be doing. And so, I mean, I'm here because this is the only option people it's, it's, if you realize it's the only option or if you don't realize it's the only option, that's really the only way I look at it. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it's, it's all coming. I mean, we just launched, uh, our scope two product did a really cool, um, press release with a company called Watt time, a nonprofit that, uh, we're overlaying our data, their data onto our hourly, uh, electricity demand data. And then with that, um, pushing out scope to emissions, it's still in beta phase as again, we haven't even gotten government, uh, oversight in terms of what that looks like, but it's coming. Uh, it's going to look like what Rex were. And I remember hearing about Rex the first time at a Texans game in the suite and guy from London school of economics came over. He's like, we're trading Rex. I'm like, like T-Rex or like, what are we doing here? He's like, renewable energy credits. This is like 2009. No one knew what that was. Now everyone trades Rex. Carbon's the next market. I love markets. My first market was baseball cards. Um, and now it's electricity and carbon and all the other fun things. So, I mean, it, the clean economy, it's just the economy now, in my opinion. You may have kind of answered this next question, but I'm going to take a run at it anyway. <clears throat> in the interviews you've done in the past that I watched to prepare for this one, you've talked about being a really active networker. And perhaps that's us Irish people's gift of gab. I imagine you've been able to observe the experiences of other people who are leading companies in more mature sectors. Based on those observations, do you see leading a clean economy company as different than leading companies in more mature sectors? And if so, how so? A company is a company. It's just what you do. Uh, I mean, when when I was in school, we learned about widgets, right? That's the like analogy everyone uses. I mean, there's definitely, I think the biggest difference is like B2C versus B2B. And, and we're completely B2B. But I think a company's a company. And one of the things I, I think I do, and if, if, if anyone thinks my advice is pertinent, this is the one piece I would listen to is just surround yourself with the people that you want to be. Uh, and the people that are also going through the same thing that you are. Uh, RE plus out in Vegas was unbelievable for the simple fact that there were so many CEOs there and got to hang out with all these really, really cool CEOs who had been there before. Uh, I mean, I probably hung out 30 of them and all of us are dealing with the same exact things. And you may have run like we ran a really good VP of finance program and, or uh, campaign and got a great VP of finance. But guess what? I have like five other candidates that if I had showed up to the board, weren't that bad. They would have been completely fine with it. So we all trade candidates. We all say, let's do this. Let's do that. So, I mean, I definitely think a company is a company. And, and I learned from people on the outside, we don't just hire energy. Our company is split down the middle. It is half tech and half energy. I will say on this side, energy people are... You don't want to have an energy company that does tech. You want to be a tech company that does energy. And so there's a lot that we can learn from that. Uh, and that's why, I mean, having Abe as my co-founder couldn't be better. He knows the tech side extremely well. 
like a one of the best like New York data engineers. And then on my side, I have a great network uh, of, of energy people. And we've combined those two to make a really successful company in Ampron. Can you say a little bit more about that? That's fascinating. You you want to be a tech company that does energy rather than an energy company that does tech. Why? Because uh, I donated a lot of bonuses uh, to big energy companies trying to do tech. Um, worked at a couple like big utilities that it just did not go well because people come in and this is why we are outsourced, right? Like not, not us as a company, but like if we go into like said large company and we have six, seven of the top 10, uh, retail energy providers in Texas use our platform. Uh, and we do one thing and we've done it now across a hundred different companies. So we're really, really good at what we do. If they try to build it internally, it doesn't work. The other thing too, you can't bring that type of talent. It's not about dollars. Every utility has more money than our, we like than we do. We announced it last week. We raised $20 million. Every big oil company's market cap is more than $20 million, right? And so but we have people who want to come here. They want to make a change. They want to work on fun stuff. I can let them go play with wind. And then the next day, I can let them go to Australia and work on the electricity demand forecast there. And then I can let them go play with carbon. And then I can go let them work on a casino on the Vegas Strip and a whole bunch of uh, different things. And so they can't... A big utility can't recruit that type of talent because they'll get really, really bored. We're not going to lose our our uh, employees to them. We're going to lose our employees to like Google and Amazon and Microsoft. And so that's what we look at. I mean, that's what I think is definitely interesting. And then you have those big tech people come in and teach you these principles. My chief revenue officer, Alex Robart, was chief commercial officer of sustainability at Microsoft right before this. Wow. He knows exactly how big tech works and he's put in so many best practices for us, but yet it still runs startups. And so it's a good mix between the two. So if you can blend tech and energy, that's where this is going to work. You can't just start a tech company trying to do energy and you can't start an energy company attempting tech because you just wind up giving away a lot of your employees' bonuses, which is what happened to me for multiple years. Gotcha. Okay. You quit your job tomorrow and you become a lecturer at NYU's business school. Your first lecture is describing the role of the effective CEO to your students. What, were, what are the parts of the job and how would you rank them in relative importance? That's a great question. Um, I spend a lot of time with students. I'm on the, the board of the trading risk investing program at AM. Uh, and we, we do a lot with, um, with Booth U Chicago as well. And on this, the job of the CEO, if you're, if you're doing instead of leading, there's a serious problem. Uh, and that starts with before the person even comes to your company. You need to inspire them. You need to have them uh, fully on board. That I mean, the people that we hire are, are coming from other jobs. They are highly sought after. I like when they have multiple offers. I, I like to have a have a good fight, not too hard on the compensation side, but still, I want someone that everyone else wants, right? And so if you can lead from that very beginning and then continue to lead. And one of the things I learned, um, had an executive hire that didn't go as well as it could have, uh, and then talked to a really great CEO and, and buddy of mine, uh, Kieran, and was just like, what do you do, man? Like, I know you've had some hits. I know you've had some misses. goes, go in for like, get in their business for three months and then let them fly or let them go. 
and so I think that's really the effective job as CEO is to go in and inspire people, get the right people in, and then let them go. I'm not a micromanager, possibly to a fault. Um, I very much believe in putting together the dream team. Uh, and what we're doing right now with what we're hiring, we're releasing our, our employees now on uh, get to know, like, well, welcome to the team on LinkedIn. And it's just humbling every day to see the type of people and the type of talent that we've been able to bring in. That's what gets me out of bed every morning, uh, knowing that all these people made a decision to put their, I guess, <laughs> them and their family's well-being in my hands. So that's what I think the role of the CEO is, just to go out there and inspire people, lead people. If you're doing all the little things, man, it's just, it's not a repeatable process. It's not scalable. It's not a venture company. It's a, so it's a one-man band. Six years ago, you were the first-time CEO. If you were approached by a friend of yours who was stepping into the corner office next month, what are some of the things you would advise him or her to do? <sighs> Let's see. So I'll caveat this a little bit. I had another small company before this, but it wasn't it wasn't venture-backed. It was me and another trader. Uh, doing consulting for commercial industrial, um, like commercial industrial clients. We went in electricity procurement, natural gas procurement, LED, rooftop solar, things like that. Um, had like 30 grocery stores throughout New York, uh, a couple of hospitals in Chicago. But that, that, it went fine. Like we had an exit. Um, but I think this time as CEO, I would just say surround yourself with the people that you want to be. Um, the thing that I did that has definitely helped me grow into a, a great CEO is in the energy space, there's two companies that, again, that I, I really looked up to. Um, one of those was Opower and the other was Internoc. And so I, I had a, two independents on my board. I've got an amazing woman, Catherine Flax, uh, who was uh, chief marketing officer at JP Morgan. She's on the board of ISO New England now. She's awesome. And then I had another opening and I wanted just a hard-nosed CEO had been there through everything, started a company when it wasn't cool, all of the above. And so I got, I got Tim Helian and he, he pushes me harder than anyone's pushed me. And we have a great relationship, but I would definitely say you, I knew that he ran a good company and he ran it way before energy was cool. He essentially, for those of you who don't know Internoc, the simplest way to say it is he invented demand response, right? which is like what's keeping the lights on for especially those of us in Texas. And so having someone who was founder and then CEO for 17 years, man, that's a lot of battle scars, right? <laughs> that's a long time. I'm, I'm six years in. He's, I got 11 to catch him. And so I think you just surround yourself with all those people who have been there before. And, and people who are honest with you and having that right, that right group of, of friends and colleagues and, and accountability, um, they're going to tell you that they learned a whole lot more from the things that didn't go well than the things that did. And so the way I look at it now is having 65 employees. I have by proxy worked at, we'll call it like 400, 500 companies. I don't know. Um, so I now get to know what 500 companies by proxy, by one degree of separation, one degree of Kevin Bacon, uh, what they did correct and what they did wrong. Uh, and so that's what I think I would definitely tell someone as a first time CEO is go in uh, and tell me what I'm doing right. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Every single person I onboard, uh, or I, I don't onboard, onboard them or their computer would never work. But I sit down with them in the first couple of weeks and literally say, 
like, tell me why you're here. Tell me what was attractive about Ampron. Tell me what you see that's right. Tell me what you would improve upon. Know that my door is always open. So if you see something come in, then um, let me know. And a lot of them take me up on that. And it's a great way to understand what's going on at your company, but also then be like, hey, I was at this company that exited for X hundred million and you're doing everything right, even better than what they did. And I'm like, oh, heck yeah, this is great. So that would definitely be my advice. Because if you can learn from 500 companies, your odds of, of hitting are really, really high. Nice. Broadly speaking, hiring is always cited as one of the most challenging parts of leading companies. You touched on this already, but what have you learned about making new hires? And I think it's particularly worth noting you're, you run a fully remote company. So um, I think I've got to figure that your hiring process has a little bit more at stake than perhaps in-person remote hybrids. Yeah, 100%. Um, I would say one of the things... Just build a good network. Not everyone has the advantage that I did of just starting to network when you're 19 years old and doing it pretty well. And not everyone likes networking and not everyone's outgoing and, and that's totally fine. Uh, it'd be a, nobody would get a word in it if the whole entire world was just full of me. And so I look at this and I mean, building a network and just having that, that reference check is really, really important. Uh, I mean, we had someone we almost hired and then I, I back channeled to someone that I knew that they had worked with and they were like, really nice, doesn't like to work. And I was like, all right, that just made it a lot easier. And all the references that they offered came back clean, but it was a back channel reference. References are so important. Abe, my co-founder has some of the best reference questions and he just dives in and I don't even, I don't even have them off. I, 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 I know that he's going to reference that way. So I reference a little, like a little different way of kind of trying to understand what drives the person, things like that. But you just, the references are so, so crucial, especially when, uh, when running a remote company. One of the things we always, always talk about is agency, the ability to just get crap done. And that's something that we always look at. And I had Elliot on my team come to me and he goes, you know, every single review you had, like you mentioned, you put the word agency in there somewhere. And I was like, wow. And so for running a fully remote company, you just have to have some, one of our, like one of our core values is fill in the blanks. And so you've literally got to have that ability to go in and do that. And that really helps with remote because there's days that are hard to get out of bed uh, for everybody. And on a fully remote company, you can kind of get by on that for a minute. So I, I definitely think that, that that reference is the best advice you could possibly do when, when hiring. Do you have a go-to interview question or two or three? And if they are, what are they and what do you learn from asking them? Um, if it's like a very early interview, I ask them what they know about Amperon just to see what kind of homework they did. Uh, and they'll be like, hey, I listen to some of your podcasts, I this, you do this. Uh, that really tells a lot about how much they actually care. Uh, about the job or not because if someone really wants it they're going to freaking gut the internet and then if they're kind of like eh you know I've got three interviews today at school um, then I think that's definitely one that I look at and then I definitely want to know where someone wants to be in five years I, I love when we just hired we just hired someone uh, and he came in and he's been a founder before and I'm like why are you here he goes I want to learn how to be a founder better. The first one didn't work. So like, let's do this. I was like, awesome. 
So like if you're here two or three years, like one of the things back to Tim Healy, he's got like some absurd number. He had like, I'm going to totally butcher this, like 2,700 employees. And there's like 30 or 40 that are C-suite or, or CEOs now out of his like family tree. And so I'm like, yeah, if you want to come here, do two, two years of of uh, start a boot camp and figure it out and then lo and behold go start a company that's great to know but you you look at that person different than one who wants to go into management or thinks this is their last job and things like that so i think understanding what makes people tick those are the two things that i i definitely lean into like how much do you actually care about this job why amperon uh and then the second piece of that is uh where do you want to be in five years so that then i know how to empower them and to make to drive them are they are they more driven by vacation? Are they more driven by cash? Are they more driven by equity? Are they more driven by cool projects? Like, let me know and I, I can probably make it work. Sean, talk to me about firing people. What have you learned about having to let people go? It sucks. Um, Amen to that. But, but do it quickly. Um, it doesn't help either party to let it drag out. Uh, it helps both people to know that this isn't working and they could be, they're going to be completely great for someone else. They're just not completely great for you. I mean, people quit, right? That's them firing you. It's the exact same way. Uh, so I think do it quickly, uh, whether you like it or not, but it's not fun. The, the first couple were definitely hard, but at the end of the day, what you're doing is, if it's done done correctly and done thoughtfully, like it's actually going to be better for both parties. Okay. I'd like to close with these two questions. The first is, are there habits or practices that you have picked up along the way to keep your performance as a CEO as high as possible on as many days as possible? And if so, what are they? Yeah. Um, I think definitely taking care of yourself is something that I, that I can do a, a better job as I record this with a, a broken foot from stepping off a curb. Uh, but I think just the overall health thing, like I like to box on Saturday mornings. It's a great way to just blow off steam from the week. Uh, and so go to a, a boxing gym here in Houston. So that's definitely something uh, that I like doing. Um, being around just like intellectually stimulating people uh, is super helpful. And then the, the one thing that I do that, most of my team knows is from like five to eight uh, or I guess in the morning I just wake up when my, I've got a two and a half year old. And so when he wakes up, I do that. And so I try not to schedule anything before like 9am. There's a lot of exceptions, but that's my goal is to go and hang out with him. He goes to school at like eight 30 ish. So get to do that. School's down the street, walk him. So just spending time with him. That's why I work, right? The why I work is to set him up is to is for him. He's inspiring. I I want him to think I'm the best dad possible. And so for me, my performance, my wife's awesome too. But my uh my son, just him being two and a half and having him to like look up to me, I think that's really the biggest thing that gets my performance uh up to the highest bar because I mean, he sees what I do. He sees if I yell at somebody, he sees everything. Uh, and that's only going to get more and more as he gets older. So I would definitely say that's the, that's the habit and the, like the highest accountability that I definitely have. You're the second clean techer I've met who does combat sports as a release. But you, Stephanie McClellan, she used to box and I do jujitsu. So anyway. <laughs> I like it. It's a blast. I started, I started in New York with a buddy of mine. Uh, he, uh, he was a broker back when I, back when I traded and he's like, you want to meet me here? And I'm like, man, I don't, he's like, I'll bring you hand wraps and stuff and they'll give you gloves and everything. I'm like, 
this is awesome. And so I started boxing it. It's called Title uh, in New York. There are a couple of gyms. So I started back in, I think I started in 17. Yeah, I started in 17. So I've been boxing for like six years now. And it is just, it is great stress relief. It is just like an hour of just going at it. Yeah, not a lot else is stressful after you do that. That's for sure. And you can't focus on anything else. You are just focused on one thing, and that is swinging as hard as you can and trying not to kill yourself. (laughs) Okay, last question. Looking back over the last six years, is success in a business more reliant on what it chooses not to do or what it chooses to do? Absolutely what it chooses not to do. Um, Much love to the consulting industry, but every software company out there is going to be asked to do a million things. If you're really good and they know you have a really smart data science team and a really smart engineering team, they will ask you to do all sorts of crazy chaos. It is only beneficial to them, which I understand. Everyone should have their business's best interest at heart. But that's not my business's best interest. So the, the really the only reason we lose clients is because we don't do everything. Because one of my very, very first uh, pitches, I was in New York, a big hotshot venture capital firm. And we walk in there and I was like, the grid is screwed. Like, Agreed. So we need better electricity demand forecast. Awesome. Then everyone should be, you've got an EV. I've got rooftop solar. He's got a battery. Everyone should be on a different price. Totally agree. And then we got to tell the customer. We got to get to them, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, so three companies. He goes, how much are you raising? I said, 500K. And he goes, you're going to start three companies with 500K. And I like took a breath. And then I go, that is the dumbest thing I've ever asked anyone. And so that's what's made Ampron successful. We are the best forecasting company in the world. We've won every competition we've entered since inception. We don't lose on accuracy. We don't do everything. We're not a complete bag of tricks. We're not a consulting shop. But when it comes to accuracy on forecasting, that's what we're good at. So we started with demand forecasting. Great. Then we went to wind and solar. We're the best at that. What a concept. Then we add in scope two, which actually is just layering carbon data on top of data we already had. And then last is price forecasting, which I'm very excited to see uh, being built right now. But again, we just do forecasting. So Elliot, who runs our product, uh, he says no to so much stuff, but it's always in our best interest. I'm like, but there's like, there's 50K here. And he's like, are we really building a business for 50K? And I was like, we are not building a business for 50K. He's like, great. So we shouldn't do this. I'm like, we should not do this. And so it is absolutely uh, success in a business is what you do not do um, as opposed to what you do do. Sean Kelly, this has been an awesome conversation. It has gone by very quickly and we're going to have trouble fitting it down to 30 minutes because you got a lot to offer, my friend. So I want to thank you for what you're doing. Thanks for for coming on this show and sharing your secrets. I think a lot of people we talk to have been in that corner office for longer than you have. And I think the perspective you're bringing as someone who's six years in is really useful to a lot more of our It's a lot useful to a lot more of our listeners because they're closer to where you are than say a Dan Sugar at Next Tracker. So anyway, um, I want to thank you for it. Thanks for what you're doing for a clean economy and thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. 
Our producer is Brian Mendez. If you like what you hear on Scaling Clean episodes, we'd appreciate it if you can give us a five-star rating and leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you all the best in your clean tech endeavors.